Hi, this is Perry, and we had a little snafu this time, and I thought I would dip into the archives and give you a replay of a show that I did with Randy back a couple of years ago. So enjoy this flashback to the beauty brains of old. And don't worry, we'll have a new show next week. You're listening to the Beauty Brain Show, where real scientists answer your beauty questions. And now... Here's Randy and Perry. Hey everybody, I'm Randy Schuler. And I'm Perry Romanowski. And we are the Beauty Brains, two dorky cosmetic scientists who are podcasting our way into your hearts and minds. And answering your beauty product questions. There you go. This is episode 101 of our show, and today we're going to be talking about how beauty products are regulated internationally, which sounds really boring when I say it that way. Can you can you tease that any better to make it sound exciting? Uh, enter the fascinating world of cosmetic regulations. Uh, no? Okay, close enough. Stick around. Stick around. We'll yeah. get we'll get to that shortly. So before. Can't wait. Actually, the information is quite fascinating, quite interesting, and and we're going to do it with a guy who has an accent different than ours. Ooh, that's a good tease. Well done. So before we get to that, we haven't talked in a while. I just wanted to catch up with you. I know you were off doing some traveling for the Secret Society of Cosmetic Chemists. Are we going to talk about that? Yeah. Actually, I've been doing uh, a, a bunch of traveling lately. Uh, we had a little hiatus with our show, mm -hmm. and so uh, that gave me time. I, I took trips to Denver, Cincinnati, and Stamford, Connecticut. And that's really just the life of a beauty blogging cosmetic chemist. <laughs> but I, I, one thing that I noticed when I was in Denver, um, which is sort of beauty related, yeah. your, your skin gets really dry. Now, in Chicago here, uh, like in the winter, skin really, it's getting really dry. Really, use yeah, lotion. Yeah. yeah. But but I'm in Denver. The weather is like, you know, 75, 80 degrees, and my skin felt really dry. And I think it's just related to you're up in the higher altitude, and, you know, there's less moisture, lower humidity there, and so that's going to affect your skin poorly. So what, what is the relative humidity in Denver this time of year? You know, I, I have, I have <laughs> yeah. not like to let me uh, let me uh, consult my weather app. And here. <laughs> you call yourself a cosmetic scientist? Shame on you! So here's a pro tip for any of you traveling to the mountains: uh, bring some skin lotion, even <laughs> if it's the summer. <laughs> you know, I'm awful. I I never I never really use skin lotion except when my hands like start to really hurt. Yeah, when it's it's kind of too late, then you you do it. To... <laughs> Well, it feels better when you put it on, even if your hands hurt, right? It just <laughs> that's, takes a That's while. true. That's true. All right. So in a minute, we're going to answer our question of the week. But I think it's interesting to note that this question came to us through an iTunes review. Oh, yes. We do love our iTunes reviews. Uh, what are we up? Oh, how many we got so far? We're actually over 125 now, which is kind of wow. cool. Yeah, and, that is uh, very cool. You know, we took a blood oath to uh, give a shout out to every one of our listeners who writes a review for us, and we've had a lot in the last couple of weeks, so why don't we do a, a couple more today and kind of get, get caught up? Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. I'll take the first one. All right. This one comes from us from HiCD3. They say, most trustworthy source for beauty science. These guys know more about beauty products than nearly all of the instant fix studies and products advertised and endorsed on TV. Ooh, wow. Maybe, maybe we should be on TV. 
Uh, Amanda says, I've learned so much from listening to these two seasoned pros. I'm continually grateful to these guys for providing informative, entertaining podcasts for free. And, and, and she also said, I love Perry's voice. <laughs> now, the, uh, the consensus, Amanda, in case you're not aware of, the consensus is that Perry's voice is very annoying. <laughs> but... Wait, I, I was the one who put that <laughs> meme out there. <laughs> So I so there's that, but then I'm also concerned now. You know, does Mrs. Romanowski listen to this show? Because she might, you know, not take that very well. Oh, she's not really the jealous type, <laughs> or the podcast listening type either. <laughs> All right, very good. So you're safe, Amanda. We do have one more iTunes review. This one from, comes from Kenlin from Canada. She says, "Beauty science rules. These guys are informative, funny, and really are the experts." As someone who makes their own cosmetics, it's awesome to have an inspiring show like this to learn more about beauty myths and facts. You know, that's a, a segment of the audience I don't really consider often enough, I guess. I just think of it as consumers looking to buy the best product for themselves. But, you know, people like Kenlin, who are making their own cosmetics, can learn a lot from us as well. So maybe we should uh, put together an online course for those people. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I know that we do have a fair amount of... Uh... Cosmetic formulator fans, because I go to these uh, different Society of Cosmetic Chemist uh, events, and I hear all the time from people who say that they love our show. So. Oh, excellent. All right, well, enough uh, with the patting ourselves on the back. Why don't we move on to our question of the week? So, Indeed. This one comes to us from Jax, who's in the UK. Uh, and Jax says, can you add an overview on how cosmetics are regulated in the rest of the world other than America, please? So, Jax, um, we're going to do that today. Now, it, it's going to be tough for us to tackle the entire world. Uh, but it's we, a big world out there. Yeah. We can cover multiple countries by talking about the European Union. And, of course, we are, we've already covered the U.S. So between those two markets, you've gotten, um, except probably for uh, China and Japan, I think the rest of the world pretty much follows what the U.S. and the EU does. So you get a, yeah. a pretty good sense from, um, from, from today's... Uh, session on the EU, and as a special treat, we have our EU expert. So, Perry, yeah. you want to explain uh, yeah. what's what's up with that? Sure. Fortunately, we uh, we don't have to be experts in everything, and it gets really tough to be experts in uh, regulatory stuff. As as formulators, you know, you have to know all the ingredients, and then you have to know all the rules and the different countries that have the rules governing cosmetics. It just gets very complicated. But we have teamed up with our good friend Colin Sanders from uh, the UK. He runs a beauty blog called The Beauty Scientist, and he actually tweets under Beauty Scientist, and he puts out some good stuff, uh, and he's he's actually a cosmetic chemist. He's kind of doing this, and I know he listens to our show too, so he's a big fan. Um, and so he knows his stuff, and he recently he had written a, a blog post about uh, European regulations, and that kind of prompted us to sort of team up with him to do this segment on the show. So let me explain how this is going to work. So Colin has pre-recorded uh, his presentation, so we've got that audio file. So we're going to um, try and make it a little more interactive. So we'll um, play, you know, a little snippet of Colin, and then Perry and I will jump in with our comments, and then we'll go back and forth. So it's sort of a pseudo interview in that regard. Um, yeah. But why don't we start by having uh, Colin say hello to the audience? Hi, it's Colin here from Colin's Beauty Pages, and I'm a big fan of the wacky guys over at the Beauty Brains. So I was very pleased when Randy was kind enough to invite me to contribute something to the Brains podcast to answer some questions about how cosmetics are regulated in the EU. 
Well, it's great to have you on the show, Colin. Uh, well, you're not live on the show, but it's great to respond to your voice. <laughs> we seriously, we do, we do really appreciate it. All right, so Colin, why don't you start by explaining to everyone who actually makes the rules in the EU? The obvious first question for someone outside the EU is who actually makes the rules. In fact, it's a pretty good question for people inside it as well. The answer is that the regulations are drawn up by the European Commission, a body that many Europeans don't know exists. You know, I'm glad to hear that Europeans are apparently just as ignorant of this stuff as Americans, because <laughs> I, I know people here don't understand it. And frankly, you know, you can actually be in the industry and not have a very clear understanding of how the regulatory side works. You know, be as, a, as a chemist, you know, you may not yeah. necessarily know. So I'm, I'm sure our audience is clueless. Right. And it's very difficult as a chemist to know all these rules, especially especially in a bigger company where a lot of that information is outsourced to your regulatory department. So people specialize. in Right. This. Right. Um, we'll see what Colin has to say, but I'm also curious to know if uh, Europeans share that commonly held belief that com uh, cosmetics are unregulated. So, uh, <laughs> that uh, is. Very, yeah. Very interesting. So we'll are see they? if uh, if he yeah. touches on that. The commission itself is run by 28 commissioners who are delegates from each of the 28 member states and who are usually politicians with a successful career behind them. They have a staff of about 23,000 to do the actual work of drawing up the legislation. The cosmetics regulations are just one of the many things the Commission does and it's been pumping them out regularly every four years since 1976. You can easily discover the latest version. It's online along with all the other EU regulations. So a bit of Googling will soon find it. Yeah, so it seems like a big difference to me is that there really is one central body for the EU. Yeah. And in the US, we talked about this before, you know, we have to worry about the federal government, the state mm. government, and, you know, even... It's not exactly regulations, but certain stores have their own rules of, of what ingredients you can use mm. for if they want to sell your product. So it's even like distribution regulation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It seems like it's a little more straightforward, at least the way Colin explained it. If, you, if it's really that easy to go and put your finger on the latest regulation, it's not that easy to do here at all. Yeah. Yeah. The commission can also issue what are known as decisions, which are ad hoc rulings on specific points. These can and do override regulations in particular cases. A recent example is the change to the rules on methyl isothiazolinone, where a decision has tightened the restrictions on it. This means you can't be absolutely sure the public text is up to date, which is one of the charming foibles of the way the regulations work. You know, the U.S. has some confusion as well, though. You know, um, we have cosmetics, just as one example, that are over-the-counter drugs, so yeah. they do fall under the FDA, but then, you know, some other regulations, you know, fall under, say, TSCA uh, or the Federal Trade Commission. Um, the USDA even gets in there for, like, organic cosmetics. Right, right. So it's, it, it's a bit more scattered. So even though it, it sounds like it's difficult to maybe find the most updated regs in the EU, yeah. it seems like they, at least they know where to go to find them. It's not, yeah. it's not always that easy here. Well, it's good to know that the U.S. has our own charming foibles. <laughs> I, you know, I, I wonder if the audience out there thought that today they would hear the word foible three times. What the European Commission doesn't have is a specific department devoted to cosmetics. So the regulations are drawn up by general bureaucrats. 
They don't know anything about cosmetics, so they depend on advice, and they get some of this from trade bodies and from interested parties. This means that the interests of the big producers are taken into account. Smaller producers, not so much. We, yeah, we, we talked about this issue of smaller companies uh, with that new bill in the U.S., the Safe Cosmetics Bill. Um, and uh, I, che- you know, I checked the status of that, by the way, because yeah. that was back in, I think it was back in April when we talked right, about right, it. So right. I wondered if, if there had been any progress made. So I just checked it online, and, and the, the, the progress report as of yesterday, I guess, said, quote, the bill has been read twice and referred to the Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. First of all, I like it's been read twice. Like, why? <laughs> not quite sure I understand that. But anyway, apparently, no real progress. I thought these Congress people would not read bills and then sign. <laughs> this one, they're reading twice. <laughs> they also have advice from a body called the Scientific Committee for Cosmetic Safety, or SCCS, which is composed largely of academics with an interest in medicine and general science. So, Perry, is there really a U.S. analog to this uh, SCCS? I mean, where do the industry scientists weigh in, for example? Do, I don't know if does the EU have the um, an equivalent of the uh, Personal Care Products Council? Is that what this well, is? Yeah, the the EU does have one. Uh, it's a. I think they're still going with the CTFA, the Cosmetics, Toiletries, and Fragrance. It's not association, but councilor, so okay. something like that. So those would be um, the people from our industry then who would speak to the regulators. Right. But the analog uh, for this group, the SCCS, in the United States is the CIR, the Cosmetic Ingredient Review Board. Oh, the Cosmetic Okay, that makes board, sense. Right? And, and we, guys, if, if any of this seems unfamiliar, go back and listen to our uh, episode on Are Cosmetics Really Regulated in the yep. U.S.? And we talk about all these, these uh, the regulatory bodies here in the States. And here's the difference between the, the CIR and this SCCS. It's all in the matter of funding. In the United States, uh, industry funds that independent uh, cosmetic ingredient review board, and they do the safety testing. In the EU, uh, it's the government that funds the independent SCCS. And so in some ways, uh, people see the SCCS as more independent from industry than the say the one here in the United States. Right. And so sometimes if, if you want to point to some you know, that seems more independent, you could say the SCCS is a little bit. But I, I don't think, I don't really think the, the funding matters that much. I don't know people on the CIR who are out there <laughs> taking in funding from industry and not publishing things just because of where their funding came from. Right. The whole thing is pretty transparent, at least on paper. Decisions are well documented and published online for anyone to read. The opinions of the SSCCS are full of detail. They quote the data they used and the reasoning they've adopted. They also give the names and credentials of the people involved, so you know who they are and they show they're working. You do need to have a fair bit of background and knowledge to be able to keep abreast of it all, though. Neither bureaucrats nor scientists are well known for making their business easy to follow. I don't know. I'm kind of impressed by that. This, you know, sort of show your work approach to regulatory decisions. It sounds impressive. We certainly don't have that here. Um, I wonder if you can see the affiliations, though, of any of the industry scientists who were involved in the process, you know, like who they worked for in the past, that sort of thing. So you could get a sense of, you know, if you were looking to see if there were any any bias in the decisions, you might be able to sort of backtrack it by knowing which companies people worked yeah. for. But 
I don't well, know. Well, I, I, I do just want to disagree a little bit. Uh, here in the CIR, they do publish the results of safety testing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you really can go and see the results of safety tests if you want to look that stuff up. But um, also, you have to have kind of a background in, in toxicology mm, to understand any of it. So okay. so it is it is also transparent in, in a similar way. Okay. Um, next, uh, Colin's going to tell us about how these EU regulations actually work. So what sort of regulations have these guys come up with between them? You don't need to get any kind of registration approval to launch a cosmetic, but you do need to register it on the cosmetic product notification portal. This is a simply enormous database of every cosmetic formulation on the market, along with its pack copy. Registering a product on it is not tremendously difficult, and it's free to registrants, which inevitably means the cost of administering it comes from European taxpayers. Its stated purpose is to provide poison centres with rapid information on the ingredients of cosmetic products in the event of some kind of medical incident. I would love to know how often this database is actually referred to. Well, first of all, notice that you don't have to get approval to launch cosmetics in the EU. I know some yeah. of the uh, some people always claim that the EU is, you know, more highly regulated right. than the US, yeah. but you know, you don't need to get approval and that's just the same way as it is in the United same States. Same way here, yeah. Now, the registration requirement he mentioned is it's already voluntary in the US and this new bill that they're talking about would make that kind of thing mandatory, so that would make it more in line with the uh, the way the EU is doing it. And yes, the fees to support this would be passed on to the U.S. taxpayer. And, you know, just a point about voluntary versus mandatory. Most of the big companies in the industry follow the voluntary guidelines because they know it'll help keep them out of trouble. And it's some of the, you know, maybe the shadier Internet-only companies or some of the companies that are too small to just, you know, have those sorts of functions staffed very well. Those are the ones who aren't doing the things that are voluntary because they don't want to or they can't. But for right, the most right. part, big big cosmetics, so to speak, it's already they're already doing these things. Yeah. yeah. This isn't the only information the European Commission is collecting. There is also a requirement to notify them of any serious adverse effects on cosmetics. This is an idea that's been adopted from the pharmaceutical industry, where it's been going on for a long time. This is potentially of great help in identifying problem products and problem ingredients. It's only been running since. 2013, so it's a bit soon to judge how this is going to work out. But if my experience is anything to go by, there aren't going to be too many of them. Yeah, this um, adverse incident reporting, as Colin just described, is a central tenet of this new U.S. bill. Um, you know, and the 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 other point of that is just to help identify products that cause a lot of health-related issues. I mean, that may or may not be you know an allergic reaction. It could be skin irritation. It could be you know poisoning, as he mentioned, for poison control centers. Um, you know, I remember one case that we saw of, a, of an adverse incident that was reported where, uh, and I forget exactly how it was worded, but it was the, the shampoo caused eye damage. And so we thought, oh, well, gee, was, the, was it, you know, the, the surfactant too harsh and it irritated the eye or what happened? Well, when you looked in the details of the report, it turned out that some woman had thrown a shampoo bottle at her husband <laughs> and hit him in the eye. And that showed up as, you know, eye irritation or something like that. So you really have to understand each individual case when you're looking at these reports. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, let's look at the next topic that uh, Colin discussed is probably one of the most important, and this is about banned ingredient. You frequently hear about how the EU bans many more ingredients than the United States, and in some ways that's true, but let's see what Colin has to say. 
The EU has quite a long list of banned substances. This is the longest bit of the regulations and the one that almost nobody ever refers to. I have the rest of the regulations printed out in a folder on my shelf full of uh, notes and comments. I add whatever I learn about what they mean and how they are interpreted and enforced, but I skipped the banned substance list. I don't think there is anything on it that anybody would ever want to put into a cosmetic in the first place, so I don't really see the point of it. There is a list of controlled substances, which are things that you are only allowed to use up to a certain level or in particular kinds of product. There are lists of permitted preservatives, colours and so on, although there is nothing to stop you using things that are not on the list so long as they are safe. I, this is one of my favorite parts of, of Colin's discussion because there's lots of confusion over this. And you, and you see uh, this cited as a point of contention in the U.S. all the time. People will say yeah. the U.S. you know have, have only banned eight ingredients and in the U.K. they ban, I think it's over a thousand right. what's on that list. But you know, as Colin just pointed out, uh, many of those things would never be used in cosmetics in the first place. Right. Uh, and and actually, they're not allowed in U.S. cosmetics because they're not safe. You're not allowed to use things that are unsafe. It's just there isn't a list of prohibited ingredients. Right, right. So, it's and, yeah, it's a subtle difference, but it's an important one. Um, I mean, the implication when people make the claim that uh, the U.S. hasn't banned these ingredients is that, yeah, somebody would use them. But <laughs> no, nobody would use them. They don't, they mean... Who's going to put, like, uranium in right. your Right, or, cosmetic, you, know, you know, ground up glass or arsenic yeah, or, think, or, you know, whatever. I, I, well, I think one of them, one of the substances banned in the EU is, like, jet propellant. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. okay. All right, we won't put that in our cosmetic. Yeah, so, you know, both EU and U.S. laws are designed to keep consumers safe, and you can't just, you know, take these numbers out of context, I guess. So, speaking of safety, the next thing uh, Collins discusses is how products how products are assessed for safety, and it sounds like there are two basic approaches. But the most significant way that cosmetic product safety is addressed is through the requirement for safety assessments. When you think about it, there are two ways you can ensure safety. You can either lay down a set of rules that everyone needs to follow, or you can require somebody who knows what they're talking about to approve the product before they're released. The EU uses a mixture of both. There are plenty of prescriptive rules, most of which are pretty conservative in their assessment of the risks particular ingredients pose. And you also need to get any formulation you launch signed off by a safety assessor. When safety assessments originally came out, the rules about who should do them and how they should be written were pretty vague. They simply called for a suitably qualified person to assess the safety of the product. I quite liked this approach. It put the onus on the company to justify that their assessor was indeed suitably qualified. Yeah, this this seems really similar to the way that cosmetics are handled, the safety of cosmetics are handled in the United States, at least at larger companies. Uh, typically what you have, you have formulators, but then you have a regulatory department who is usually staffed with a toxicologist, and they're going to review the formulas, uh, give their input about ingredients that you can and can't use, and also uh, be involved in the testing, the safety testing, because you have to do safety testing before you can launch a product, because as we say, it's illegal to sell unsafe cosmetics and you have to be able to prove that they are safe. Sadly the rules have become much more exiguous and now there is a specific format that safety assessments 
need to follow and some criteria for suitable qualifications for assessors. This actually makes the system a bit weaker because anybody with a chemistry or a life sciences degree can easily meet the criteria with relatively little extra work and as long as they diligently follow the correct format laid down in the rules they can be a safety assessor. That seems a lot easier than having to justify that you are a super qualified person to me. I'd rather have somebody who actually knows a bit about how cosmetics work personally. You know, I'm not I'm not sure how this works in the US. I know that you to be a toxicologist you have to be there is a certification program for that. Right. So I think that's um sort of what what compensates for that weakness in the EU regulation if I'm understanding Colin correctly. You can't just have a chemistry degree and call yourself a a toxicologist or safety assessor. You do have to have the the certify the certification. I don't know if that's voluntary though or if that's mandated by law someplace. That I don't know. Yeah, I don't think that's required by law in the US. How does it all work in practice? Different European countries enforce the regulations in different ways. In the UK, trading standards officers are responsible, but this is just one part of their remit to protect consumers, and their approach is generally pragmatic. They tend to not give cosmetics a huge amount of attention, probably for the very good reason that they don't give consumers much in the way of trouble. There are other bits of legislation that they have in their toolkit which are relevant to cosmetics, which they can use. So even when there is a problem, they aren't necessarily or even probably going to use specific cosmetic legislation to deal with it. Yeah, you know, he mentioned trading standards. You know, I think in the U.S., you know, that's more about like ensuring products meet their net weight <laughs> statements, right. that sort of thing. I mean, every once in a while you'll hear, and I think it falls under the Federal Trade Commission, I forget now, but they'll go into a store and actually weigh products on the shelf and, and see if they contain it as, you know, the, the amount of product that they say so on the label. Right. Um, so I guess that's one similarity. Yeah. Okay, but... The cosmetic regulations are, in fact, rather unsuitable to their purposes. A good example are skin lighteners containing hydroquinone. Most people in the business are reasonably clear that Article 14 of Annex 3 of the EU regulations bans hydroquinone in any products except hair dyes and artificial nails, and in these you can't use more than 0.3%. But if you look at it as it is written, it is open to the interpretation that it is limited in those products, but you can use as much as you like in other products. So I wasn't surprised to see a prosecution of a shop selling a skin lightening cream being carried out using a completely different law altogether. All right, that, that example kind of blows my mind, if, I, if I'm understanding him correctly, and it really highlights how complicated and convoluted the whole process is. So if I understood yeah. him correctly, that so the law says this particular ingredient is banned in any product except in two cases, and it limits the level that you can use in those cases. But then there's no level limit given for other products, and therefore people think they can use as much as they want, but but it's banned. I, does... I, that is weird. I mean, I guess you'd have to see the regulation directly, and it doesn't say the word banned. It's, uh, that it comes down to what does banned mean? You know yeah, I mean? yeah, very confusing. Uh, this might sound like a criticism, but it really isn't. One of the good things about the EU regulations is that they are written in language that is straightforward enough to provide guidance to anyone interested and you don't need a lawyer to interpret them for you. In Ireland the health department has been given the job of enforcing cosmetic regulations and they go about it in a rather more legalistic way presumably because their pharmaceutical training influences them to do so. 
if you are selling your products in Ireland, you need to be ready to be interrogated by someone who has read the regulations very carefully if they get any complaints. Other European countries all have their own particular ways of enforcing the regulations. I thought this was interesting, and it, it kind of gets to the core of Jack's original question. Even though the laws are the same across the EU, the way that they are enforced varies from country to country. Hmm. Now, we have a little bit of that in the United States because in addition to the federal laws, we have some state laws that obviously would be different from state to state. Although I do wonder, uh, you know, sometimes a state will pass a law and then the federal government say, oh, you're overreaching, and so it'll invalidate that law, right? Yeah. But uh, so I wonder if there's that same sort of thing here in the EU. I don't know. It makes it sound like everybody in the EU has one set of regulations, but then they choose to enforce them differently. So it is a, it is a bit of a different scenario than, than we have here in our, in, yeah. you know, with our federal versus state laws. So who knows? Right. Okay, so next up, uh, Colin's going to talk about the risks that cosmetics actually pose to the public. So... The big question is, do the regulations actually do the job? What are the risks that cosmetics pose to consumers? It happens that most cosmetic products are applied to the skin and the hair, which are not really vulnerable parts of the body. Unbroken skin is a pretty good barrier to most potential toxins. Even products that are used in or around the mouth, like lip balm and toothpaste, are used in tiny quantities. Cosmetics that did contain harmful ingredients are not going to do much harm, and there is not much incentive to use anything harmful anyway. You can make highly effective products using ingredients that are both cheap and safe. Why would you do anything different? Yeah, no, that's an interesting. That's an interesting point. When ingredients are known to be harmful to people, the industry—it's been my experience—they quickly move out of that ingredient. Right. Uh, in in the rare case that those ingredients uh, make their way into products in the first place, right? Um, I remember when we were when there was even a hint that cocomide DEA was right. a bad ingredient. Everybody switched out right. of it. Yeah, you know? exactly. And because there's lots of other ways to make your product foam or you know, or do whatever, right? So yeah. there are lots of options to change stuff. Now it gets a little more difficult when you're removing preservatives, but for most all other things, there's always an, another option. It's a little different, you know, when there may be subtle health effects or there's no clear data yet indicating that there is a problem, and you know, endocrine disruptors come to mind, right? There's a lot of data on ingredients that say, well, they might do this, but those are generally done you know in uh, vitro testing so it's only on cells in the lab and it's really unclear whether there's an issue or not you know then it takes longer for the industry to turn around and make a change but once there's a, a clear and present danger i think they move very quickly for sure so the products from big and medium-sized companies are likely to be both legal and completely safe in fact Given that they're all trying to build brands, they are very concerned with their reputations and would probably not behave very differently if all the cosmetic regulations were withdrawn tomorrow. Yeah, this is a great point. You know, there seems to be this sense that, you know, big beauty will, you know, just dump all sorts of dangerous chemicals into products as long as they're cheap and they can make good profits. That's not true at all. I mean, remember, first of all, you know, the chemists and everybody else in the company, for that matter, that make these products often use these products themselves. Remember, we, right. like, people would be lined up at our company store to get the products we make. Like if we were, you know, secretly, or not even secretly, but just in the company going, we're adding some poisonous <laughs> stuff in here because it's really cheap and we don't care if it kills people, yeah. we wouldn't be using these things. So it's, it's really absurd. I mean, do you think people in the industry are really that callous and stupid? You know, 
And I, you know, I, I'm sure you'll back this up, but we've been in the industry quite a while. I've never heard management suggest to you something dangerous just because it's cheaper. I mean, that just doesn't happen. Now, you may have to use something that's less effective because it's cheaper. You know, you want to cost right. cut a little bit, but that's that's different. That's not a safety issue. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, you can't really use worse ingredients to make the products much cheaper. You know, it's just there's not that much. You know, you're saving pennies. You're not really saving much. Uh, so it, it it that that claim has never made sense to me. There are also quite a lot of people who make cosmetics on a small scale and sell them at craft fairs and websites like Etsy. These people may not be quite so aware of the details of the regulations but they're motivated by love of what they do, and it's hard to imagine them doing anything harmful. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I don't think people are... Uh, smaller people who or do-it-yourselfers who are selling their products are malicious, but oh. I certainly think a lot of times they're ignorant of the laws, ignorant of uh, the dangers, actually. And it's always... That, that's why one of my suggestions is if all things being equal, if you're going to buy a product, uh, buy something from a bigger company rather than a smaller company because it's a much higher chance that the product is safe. And all you fans of DIY products, send that hate mail to Perry Romanowski, <laughs> care of the beauty brands. The only sector of the cosmetic business which is likely to pose any risk are products that are made on a small scale purely to make money. These tend to be distributed in ways that makes it hard for you to track back to them. Not very well-known websites, direct mail and mail-order adverts are typical. These people are not out to do any harm, but they can often be willing to cut corners. There was a lot of publicity recently about fake branded products. Contamination is the biggest problem, and fake products were found to contain things like rat droppings. Nobody is putting this kind of thing in their products deliberately, but they might well not follow elementary hygiene, such as keeping batches covered overnight. This is exactly the kind of thing people out to make a quick buck are going to do as well. The cosmetic regulations give one option to the authorities when they are trying to stop this kind of thing going on, though there are other laws that might well be being broken at the same time. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, all bets are off if you're dealing with unscrupulous companies that are selling fake branded products. Now, you know, yeah. I'm not talking about just a drugstore dupe and somebody's selling a cheaper knockoff of Olay or something like that. I mean, I'm talking about products, these companies that are, you know, willing to break one law in terms of counterfeiting. Uh, who knows what else they would do illegally? So yeah. there, there could certainly be a danger in that regard. All right, so you know, at this point, we would usually uh, provide a beauty brain's bottom line, but since this is Colin's presentation, we're going to brand this a little differently. And we're going to call the wrap-up the equally alliterative Colin's conclusion. Oh, that's nice. I think the conclusion I draw is that cosmetics you buy through regular distribution channels like shops, pharmacies, and big specialized online cosmetic websites are pretty much as safe as you can expect them to anything to be. Regulations are respected and followed by all the big suppliers and distributors, but the actual detail of what the regulations say is probably not as important as the motivations of the people who make the stuff. Well, that was an excellent wrap-up, Colin. Uh, hopefully this gives Jax and other listeners a sense of how regulations work in the EU, which is really one of the largest markets in the world. And hopefully our comments have given you some context as to how they compare to U.S. regulations. You know, really, I think what you could see is that eh, they're different, but they're pretty much the same, right? They're not, they're not as dissimilar as um, yeah. some of the, the sound bites on the Internet might, might lead you to believe. Right. 
So and and hopefully we've done this in a way that's not terribly dry. <laughs> And uh, our sincere thanks to Colin for his expertise on this. We certainly would have had trouble putting this together ourselves. So thanks a lot, Colin. We do appreciate it. Yeah, certainly check out his website, Colin's Beauty Pages, when you're done going through all of the beauty brain stuff. (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll put a link to the show notes, as always. All right, Perry, we have come to the end of another show. You want to quickly remind our listeners of uh, all the good things? Oh, yeah? Yeah, you know, you're right. We have come to the end of the show, but uh, there was one more anecdote I wanted to share about my Denver trip. Oh, please. Yeah, on our drive out to Denver, I actually listened to a couple of audiobooks. Oh. One of the things I love about long road trips is listening to books. Of course, the book that I listened to was called Demon in the Freezer, which was all about the smallpox virus and the fact that it would make a devastating weapon and that there are still a few vials of it left out there in the world that we should really be afraid of. (laughs) This is such an uplifting segment. (laughs) Yeah, it was about trivialing. However, the book was really fascinating, as most audiobooks are. And now the Beauty Brains has teamed up with Audible to bring you a special offer. If you sign up with them using the link audibletrial.com slash beautybrains, you can download a free audiobook and show your support. So you can get The Demon in the Freezer or most any other book uh, as your first audiobook, and you get that for free. Just sign up through our link, audibletrial.com slash beautybrains, for a 30-day trial, which you can cancel at any time. And you still get to keep the free audiobook if you do cancel. So audibletrial.com slash beautybrains. And just to be clear, they're free to read about the pathogen of their choice, right? They're not limited to just smallpox. (laughs) Right. You might check out Parasite Rex, another one of my favorites. (laughs) I I would like to see the book club that you belong to. It makes no sense to me. But anyway. All right. Well, thanks, Perry. Thanks, Colin, uh, both to both you guys for a great show and for all our listeners for sticking with us through our 101st episode. And we'll be back to see you guys again next week but until then remember perry tell them be brainy about your beauty well done i needed money because i had none i bought the